0: Hello and welcome to Crime Time FM. My name's Paul Burke and I write about crime fiction. Today my guest is Heather Young, US author of The Lost Girls, published in the UK by Verve. It's a powerful psychological drama that explores love, loss and family. The Lost Girls was lauded on publication in the US and Young's follow-up, The Distant Dead, was Edgar nominated. That will be published in the UK in the spring, so you really won't have long to wait if you love The Lost Girls. For now, let's talk about that. Hello and welcome to Crime Time FM, Heather.
1: Oh, thank you very much. Hello.
0: Hello. Um, let's start with something straightforward. You obviously love telling stories. Is that always the case?
1: Yes, I would say so. Um, I did not start writing stories down until mm-hmm. I was in my 40s and decided to write this novel. But as I look back across my childhood, I was a constant storyteller and As an example, when I was a little girl, my sister and I would be at the dinner table and I would tell her stories about the food on the plate and what was happening to it (laughs) when it went into our mouths and down the long tunnel to a new land where they could be happy with the peas and the carrots. (laughs) So you were comforting yourself. (laughs) I felt very bad for the food I was eating. I was (laughs) murdering it. (laughs)
0: It's interesting, though. I don't know what you think, but it bothers me a lot now the more I think about it when I talk to writers. You know, we take kids and we educate them and we kind of educate all the imagination and everything out of them because we're trying to prepare them for life. And it seems such a a sort of disappointment at the end, really, doesn't it?
1: It really does. But I think that imaginative children are going to tell those stories to themselves and other people no matter what's happening in their classroom. They will tell stories about the peas on their plates or they will tell stories about the dolls in their toy chests, they will do it one way or another.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So it was a while before you did write your first novel, as you just pointed out. Um, Just like the break, the other things you did in your life, do you think in general this sort of um, helps with writing a novel? I mean, every novelist comes to this with their own sort of approach to things, but that life experience and learning about people, do you think that helps?
1: Oh, it definitely did. I think had I started writing in my 20s, my stories would have been, I would say I was a pretty facile person in my 20s. I didn't have a lot of rich life experience. And I think my stories would have been pretty shallow in that regard. But, you know, in my 40s, I had had my share of joys and tragedies, and I was a mom and I'd been a lawyer. So I had a richer um, kind of tapestry of life to pull threads from for the stories that I was going to write.
0: Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I think we could all say the same about our 20s, probably. Yes. <laughs> um, the time you spent as a lawyer, I, in fact, at one point, I think you worked for the California Coalition for Battered Women in Prison. Is that right? I did, yes. Right, indeed. Um, I'm just wondering, there's a sort of a narrative that you need to develop as a lawyer when you, when you are working for people. Tell us a little bit about that, because does that play into your writing?
1: Absolutely. And I would say um, that's one of the things people don't understand as much about being a lawyer. I think Mm. people think of it as um, either you're performing in a courtroom or you're arguing with your opponent. But what you're really doing is telling a story. You're telling the story of your client. Mm. And when you're a defense attorney, as I was, and I will say that I was mostly defending very large corporations and antitrust and intellectual property suits. So I wasn't dealing with crime, but you are nonetheless dealing with fairly complicated people who may not be you know the most admirable out in the world yet you have to make their story understandable relatable and the things that they may have done that crossed a tiny line or two here and there mm-hmm. a bit more understandable so i think as a lawyer you learn to tell stories with nuance and forgiveness for your protagonist and that's a very important skill when you're writing a novel
0: yeah absolutely and of course the thing about it is as well it has to make sense to you the story that you're hearing And then you can relate it and pass it on. And, of course, that's part of a novel writing process as well, isn't it?
1: Yes. And I would say as a lawyer, of course, you have to stick to the truth. And so your stories are always grounded in what's true. And I think that even though novels are fiction, you still want them to be grounded in what's true and believable for those characters that you've created. So that sense of connectedness to believability is true in both.
0: Yeah, absolutely because I think if there's a misstep with that, readers pick up on it very quickly, don't they? When oh, absolutely.
1: I know I know I do as a reader for sure.
0: Hmm. One other aspect of the time between before you wrote this first novel was that of course you were a mum and you spent time with your children and that again it's it's about creating stories. I mean, I've got my nieces around me now and they just constantly invent from the moment you walk in the door. I asked one of them if she enjoyed her nursery class. And she says yes, and then starts making up a story about an elephant. And it's just brilliant, <laughs> this this life that they bring. But that's also part of the narrative and the storytelling process, isn't it?
1: Absolutely. I used to have this game I played with my children. We had about a 30-minute drive from our house to their preschool. And we would get in the car and I would say to each of them, pick three things. And then I will tell you a story about those combined six things. Right. And it yes, was yes. always like. A dragon and a princess and a fire truck and like some completely disjointed random six things. And for 30 minutes, I would tell a story about those things and they would chime in and help drive the narrative. Oh, but wait the fire engine comes and saves the princess. Yes, that's exactly what happens. So yeah, they're just constantly feeding off of stories all through their lives. And as an adult that interacts with them, you really can't help but be part of that interaction.
0: Yeah, no, it's beautiful. It really is. So tell us a little bit about when you decided to get back to writing or when you decided to write your first novel, because this novel has a long gestation period. It does. (laughs) Well, tell us about that then.
1: (laughs) Well, I had been a lawyer for about 10 years and then I had stayed home with my kids for another 10 years. And so they were at that age, 10, 11 years old, where they didn't quite need as much of my time as they had in the past. Mm. So I first thought about maybe going back to practicing law, but that especially the type of law I practiced, was very time-consuming, and I didn't think right. I could balance that with my parenting demands. So I looked at other careers, and really kind of as a whim, I thought to myself, you know, haven't you kind of always wanted to write a novel? Maybe give that a go. And if it doesn't work, then you can find something else. Well, I was—I had a lot of hubris around that, and I thought it would be easy. I thought that because I'd been a lawyer, and I knew how to write <laughs> sentences in order in a coherent way – and because I'd read a ton of books that I could just churn out a novel in maybe a year, year and mm. a half, and then it would go on to become a huge bestseller and they would make a movie out of it and we could <laughs> all retire. I mean, it was really quite obnoxious. <laughs> As <I look> back <laughs> on my, well, it's my good to have goals. <laughs> it's good to have goals. Well, I started writing it and it did take me eight years to write it because I had to learn there is really not a whole lot of overlap between legal writing and fiction writing. And there is a very sophisticated craft, as you know, involved in writing a coherent novel. And I had to learn that. So it took almost a decade to get that first book written.
0: Right, including a long time when you sat at a computer actually waiting for some inspiration.
1: Absolutely, I sat there for many, many, many months. Um, the, <laughs> the point between deciding in, to write a novel and having a story idea was, was long. Um, it definitely was. I, there, I am not a person that carries, as much as I talk about the peas and the carrots and the dragons and the fire hmm. engines, I don't, I don't apparently carry around a lot of stories in my head that are ready to be told in an adult kind of novel. So it was hard that getting that in, first inspiration.
0: Yeah. I wonder, is that reflected in the book? Because right at the start, when Lucy's um, talking about her notebooks, I think she says something like, an empty page demanded to be filled. Was that sort of you thinking about how the process had been for you?
1: Yes, exactly. Yes, I felt very much like Lucy in that moment. And that was one of the first chapters I wrote. Ah. And I did have that moment where I was thinking, I am filling the page. It is a page that demands to be filled. It might be a computer screen, but it's just as empty and just as in need of content. Right. Yeah.
0: I heard you went to a writer's group, though, as well. and, And that was a big help. Tell us a little bit about that.
1: Yes. Um, help in the sense of kicking me in the fanny, I guess you would say. <laughs> <laughs> I joined a writer's group that was comprised mostly of women who were writing romance novels. And it was the only writer's group I could find. I didn't know any writers. Right. I i knew one woman who had written a book that she had self-published and she was starting her second one. And she said, why don't you come to this writer's group? It'll just get you going. So I went every month for six, seven, eight months Mm -hmm. and was very free with my comments on their work. (laughs) As a lawyer, I was a great editor and never, ever gave them any pages of my own until finally I went and they staged sort of an intervention and they said, this is a writer's group. So you come back in 30 days with pages or you don't come back at all. And that, it turned out, was the key that unlocked my blockage because, again, as a lawyer, everything you do is on a deadline. You've got 30 days to write this brief. You've got 15 days to craft a reply brief. Everything is deadline-driven. And it turned out I had absorbed that into my my work ethic. So I needed a deadline, and once I got one, Naturally, I waited 29 of the 30 days (laughs) 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 because, again, that's what you do.
0: Yeah, Um, absolutely.
1: I did put some words on the page that became the seed that grew into The Lost Girls.
0: Right. Yes. That's really interesting. Um, There's another interesting aspect about this, which is that a lot of novelists uh, or people who start writing, they write a book and they know it's not good enough, so they put it away in a cupboard and then they get back to another one. And, you know, that process can go on. And it's a process of learning, but you did it very differently, didn't you?
1: I did not do that. I, I am not one of those people who can, um, I'm a multitasker by like in every other aspect of my life, but in writing, it turns out I am not a multitasker. Right. I was going to start that project and I was going to finish it even if it was terrible. The idea of abandoning it midway through and then having to step back and come up with another story idea and begin at the beginning was just too daunting. And believe me, in those eight years, there were many days when I thought that that book was utterly wretched crap and it didn't deserve to be finished, but I couldn't put it away because I had nothing else to write. So I just kept slogging along.
0: But through that process, you gradually got to what you wanted to get to. That's essentially
1: it. Yes, yes. And I had read somewhere along the way um, a comment, I think, in a literary magazine about the number of people who have started books and not finished them, mm. and put them in the desk drawer and maybe started another one, maybe not. And the estimate was that only 4% of people who start writing a novel actually finish a complete novel. And something about that, because I'm a little competitive was I am not going to be the 96%. This book might be wretched, you know, bollocks, but I'm going to be in the 4% that gets to the point where they write the end. Right. And And you did. And I did. Let's go
0: back to the start. What was the actual first thing that got you into uh, the novel? The first scene you wrote, in a sense. That's that thing that came on the 30th day.
1: Yeah. So the first scene I wrote actually did not make the final cut into the novel. Ah, Interesting. right, right. But it was, I had gone to this lake in Minnesota every summer when I was a little girl. And the notion of like, I was trying to grasp for a story. And at some point I had the inspiration that maybe I should start with a place and see if a story came from that. right. So when I was little, I remember the other kids who would come to that lake said that in the wintertime the school bus would drive across the frozen lake to pick them up for school. Right. Mm. I always thought that was so cool. Absolutely. I mean, I lived in a place where nothing ever froze, froze yeah. over a all the time. So I had that in my memory. And so the first scene was of a woman standing at the end of a dock with two little girls watching a bus drive across the frozen surface of the lake to pick them up for their first day of school in this new place where they were living. They didn't have any names. They didn't have any backstory. They were just a woman and two little girls waiting for a bus. And so from that, once I wrote that scene, I decided I kind of liked it. And besides, I I actually had to turn it in the next day to the writers group. It was the only thing I had. Then I started asking, who is this woman? What's her name? Right. Where did she come from? Is she running from something? Where is the children's father? Um, what, are the, what are the children like? And from that little seed, everything else flowed. All the questions about why they were there and where they were going came from that one scene.
0: Yeah. It's really interesting because it puts this really vivid image in your mind as well. You know,
1: it really did help coalesce a lot of the story elements for me, just the loneliness, this the de- the feeling of desperation. Nice. Um, we're all there in that scene. So, yeah.
0: So this, I think would be a good time if we tell people a little bit about the lost girls.
1: Oh, sure. Would you like doing this? <laughs> I hate this part. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, let's give it a try.
1: <laughs> okay, I'll give it a try. Um, the Lost Girls is about um, a family of women centered around um, a, a very remote lake in northern Minnesota. And in the summer of 1935, three sisters spend their summer at that lake as they do every summer. But on the last day of that summer, the littlest girl, six-year-old Emily, is not in her bed. She's gone. She has disappeared. What happens to that family afterwards, her two other sisters and her mother end up spending the rest of their lives at that lake, keeping vigil, keeping watch, waiting for Emily to come home. Um, They each have their own individual reasons for staying. 64 years later, the last of this family, um, Lucy, the middle sister, leaves this lake house to her great niece, Justine. And she also leaves a journal in which she is going to tell Justine the secret she's been keeping all these decades, which is what really happened to Emily. Right. So after Lucy dies, Justine inherits the house. She happens to be at kind of an inflection point in her life, in a bad relationship. She picks mm-hmm. up her two daughters. She flees across the country to this lake house that she knows very little about and tries to start a new life there. And they, of course, are haunted by what happened in 1935 and the shadows it has cast over all the generations of Evanses since then. So that's kind of the story in a nutshell, I think.
0: Yeah. No, that's perfect. Okay. <laughs> a big a, nutshell. <laughs> just so people know, that's the most we're going to tell them about a story. We're yes. going to talk about issues, but we're going to skirt around an awful lot from that point because we don't want to spoil it for anybody. Let's start with the place then, first of all, um, because the place and so on, the setting was so important to you. But it's a funny thing. You don't, you don't know this, but I live in South Wales.
1: Oh, I did not so know
0: So when I start reading about... The Evanses and the Pew's and the Thomases and the Davises and the Lewises and the Jones. I obviously start <laughs> to figure that this is this is a Welsh town. Um, or uh, part of the origin of it is is from the Welsh miners. And of course, there's a lot of stories about the trips that went across there. I'm just wondering, I mean, it, it makes this town very much part of the history of modern America in the sense that this is this is the development story for the nation, isn't it?
1: It is. And I will say my mom grew up in a town in Iowa. Her, right. last name is, her last name is Lewis, right. and I she is descended from, the town is Williamsburg, and her great-grandfather, William Williams, was the founder of that town. And the town was comprised almost entirely of Welsh immigrants, either first, second, even third generation. She herself, my mother, though she's a third-generation American, there isn't a single relative on either side that isn't Welsh, because right. that community was, was, a, was a Welsh enclave. So for me, I grew up hearing a lot about those stories of people coming from Wales, especially in the mines to the new world. And so when I was trying to create this imaginary town in Minnesota, I drew on that family history to do that. And all those names. Also, I just absolutely love Welsh names. (laughs) I have a little weakness for them.
0: (laughs) I would think, you know, from where I am now, my village, I could probably, within a few minutes, walk to a house that had a Thomas, a Jones, a Davis, and all the yes. people you've got. So, <laughs> pretty similar in that sense. Because um, yes. there is another aspect about it, though, which is that there's something about this Minnesota and the the ancient lands and the lake and everything that it kind of conjures up the ancientness of it as well. Does that make sense? You know.
1: Yes, I have a real fondness for an interest in um, ancient human history, anthropology. Right. And so I have done a lot of independent reading for pleasure about um, the early North American settlers the ones who mm-hmm. came over the land bridge from Siberia 15,000 maybe now even earlier yeah, years ago right. and I'm also interested in the you know the history of, of humanity in the British Isles and Europe I'm really interested in the longevity of the human story so when I go to a place I tend to really try to tap into that ancient history. Right. And these lakes in Minnesota, they were carved out by the last glacial maximum, you yes, know, when, they, right. when the glaciers receded, they carved out these lakes. And there's just something like claws almost dragging backwards across the land. There's something really I think evocative about that mm. history, not just of humanity but of the land itself that I think is going to always be in every story I write uh, no matter where it's set.
0: I totally agree. I heard a writer saying the other day, actually, that there was a murder that happened in his book, but there was logging going on on the hill. Mm-hmm. And the point he was sort of making was, you know, the murder is tragic and it's here and it's now, but that logging problem up there is for the rest of time, you know, we're destroying exactly. it and that's the way it is.
1: Yeah. Yes.
0: Um, thinking about that then, it's obviously very grounded in in the things we've been talking about, but do you like the idea of actually building your own world?
1: I love it. Honestly, if I had... more imagination, I would be a science fiction writer. (laughs) (laughs) I love the idea of just creating a place out of whole cloth. And I will say I've now written two books. One, The Lost Girls is set in an imaginary town that I created. Yes, right. Our second book, The Distant Dead is set in a real place. And I much prefer the imaginary town of my own mind to the real town that actually exists. Um, I find it's like richer in terms of the kinds of stories I can pull out of it. Right, if it's yes. entirely rooted in my mind and not someplace where I have to go, okay, what street is the high school on and what street is right. the middle school on? So, yeah, I, I am a, I love world building. I, I really do. That's one of my favorite parts about writing.
0: Oh, it's interesting to hear you say that because some writers also like the crutch of having something physical that they can rely on in a sense, you know, mm-hmm. you obviously prefer it entirely the other way. Yes. Just one thing, you did mention your mother there, and I'm specifically thinking of your mother and father because they came from very different backgrounds, but they came from rural backgrounds. You, in fact, I think are a city girl. Is that right?
1: Yeah, I'm a suburban girl. Um, But yes, they both came from very small towns in Iowa, kind of about the same size as the fictional Williamsburg. And uh, they had, you think all small town Iowans are the same, but they're really not. I mean, my mom Mm. had the kind of experience that the Evans family has, in which she was descended kind of from the original pioneers that founded the town. Her father was a dentist. They were fairly well off and kind of as close as you can get to royalty in a small American Midwestern Mm -hmm. town. And so she swanned about in her fancy dresses and was the homecoming queen (laughs) and loved her life in her small town. Whereas my dad's family came down in 1938 from Saskatchewan. They were driven out by the Dust Bowl huge yeah, drought that, yeah, that yeah. affected Western Canada in the 1930s. So they showed up in Iowa as refugees during the depression. They didn't have roots in the town. Their roots were elsewhere and they didn't have any money. So they lived in a different part of town, like the truly the literal South of the tracks part of town mm. and their existence was much more hardscrabble. And while he liked his town, he really couldn't wait to leave. He wanted out as soon as he graduated from high school. So I was looking at these two very polar experiences of small town life and um, feeling that there's a lot more story to tell about small towns than maybe most people think. There's a lot of, there's a varied level of experiences there.
0: I think so. Definitely. I think I got the idea, you know, about how, and especially over time, how things change because there's a big issue for rural places now.
1: Yes, there are rural
0: poverty. And then there's another question, which is what kind of person wants to stay in a rural town?
1: Yes, you know? I will say I, for my second book, I did go spend a lot of time in the little de- desert town where it is set. And I got to talk to a lot of people who had obviously chosen to stay in a town that was fairly actually very ground down by um, poverty and opioid epidemic. Um, right. Yet, they, yet still they were there and asking them why was very interesting to me. You know, they stayed because mm. they had family, they stayed because, They knew everybody in the graveyard and that was something they couldn't replicate anywhere else. There's a pull to a place like that that's pretty profound. And there are people who will want to leave it and there are people who are really going to want to stay.
0: Yeah, absolutely. When it comes to character, what kind of characters do you like to write?
1: Very complicated ones.
0: (laughs) Indeed, it comes across in the book.
1: (laughs) Yes, I really like to make sure that my characters have... um, have some have some flaws, have some dirt on them, mm. you know, a few smudges here and there. Even the ones you're supposed to root for should yes. never be perfect because then they're not relatable. Everybody, I think, should be able to look at a character and say, oh, gosh, she made such a mistake, but I understand that, and I might have made the same mistake. I think if you can create a character like that, then you get that empathy between reader and character that's so important to a story.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and that definitely comes across. Because in this case, we have the the disappearance of the six-year-old girl. It impacts on the family at the time, but it it stretches over time to now. I mean, from Mm -hmm. the 1930s right the way through to the modern characters. Um, And we'll come to a little discussion of those a bit later. But it's about secrets and loyalty and regret. This is where I don't want to say anything about the plot. I will say to people it's more complex and at the same time, in some ways, much more straightforward than a reader might imagine. So my question is around um, how you layer the plot and also how you cl- create a sort of plausible alternatives, you know, routes that we don't go down in the end, but things that you manage to put in readers' minds that, that layer the story, as I said. wonder whether that comes within the writing process because of the time you took with the novel, or is it something that you sort of go back and work on? And-
1: yes, I think it definitely comes uh, through the process of working on the novel. It's not added in later. Um, I think that kind of depth is hard to add in later because it's, come, right. it, it has to steep in the story has to steep in that kind of complexity. Um, it has to just marinate in it. And if it isn't doing that all the way along, you really can't kind of go back and infuse it with it, I think. Mm. And the way I try to do that is every time I've got something happening in the story, a character doing something, making a decision, I ask Why? Why are they doing this? What has made them do it? And then also, how is what they are doing impacting the other characters around them? And if you're always asking the why and the how as you go along and building it into the story as you go, then I think you do hopefully end up with that kind of more layered texture to the storytelling. That's my theory anyway.
0: No, absolutely. And that, that certainly works that way. If we look at the relationships, the most important one is the family. Um, yes. And if we start with the, the two parents and the three girls. The family in the 1930s. Um, blood bonds are, are fascinating in a way, perhaps, that friendships aren't, let's say. And it's one of the themes is exploring that complexity and the, the competitiveness and, you know, love but also hate, a kind of thing that sort of is in relationships. Um, tell us a little bit about the family, please.
1: So the family has uh, has three sisters and... I also come from a family of three. I have a, a sister and a brother, and I have a theory right. about trios like that of trios of siblings, yeah, and that theory is that they there's always a ganging up going on. it's always going to be two against yeah, one, right it, sometimes that shifts like sometimes it was my sister and me, the girls against the boy. sometimes it was my sister and my brother who were younger, against me, the older one. Sometimes my brother and I were just piling on our sister in the middle. Like it was all these shifting alliances and dynamics. It's an Mm. unstable um, situation to have three. And so I kind of liked the idea of playing with, I've got three sisters and there's definitely some inequalities and some balances that shift over time through the book. Like the alliances change a little bit. Uh -uh. And I liked playing with that. So trying to reflect the reality of living in a family of three (laughs) with these three sisters.
0: Because it's very interesting, also the way that they compete in a sense for the love of their parents as well, and oh, of course, yeah. again, very typical of families.
1: Yes, very much so. I came from what I would consider to be a very you know non um, dysfunctional, very functional family. Mm-hmm. But even within my family, I we were always judging each other. Like, does Daddy like you best today, or does <laughs> Mommy like you best today? Is it this the thing Mommy likes best about me? So I'm going to do it more. All the time. It's like this competition for scarce resources that goes on that's under the service that kind of knives out, you know?
0: <laughs> There's going to be a lot of people listening identifying with that. <laughs> um, the novel's narrated by two women, and we, we talked, to, well, let's start with Lucy because we have mentioned her already, and she wrote the, the memoir that, that was found um, by Justine. Why did you decide to have her write that uh, from the grave or, or that we get it from the grave?
1: So, yes, there was um, the original concept of the book was that Justine, the great niece, was going to be summoned to the lake by a living Lucy to help her go through things in the attic as she was preparing to die. And that in the course of going through this stuff in the attic, things would come to light and there would be this mystery that would be uncovered in the past. But as I was writing that, that felt very lifeless to me. Mm. It was... Two women in the present talking about something that happened 60 years ago through the use of artifacts. And so every single chapter was, oh, Justine goes up to the attic and look, she found a shoe. Or the next chapter was like, oh, she goes up to the attic. Oh, she finds a letter. It was repetitive. It was lifeless. And at some point I thought to myself, what is this story really? This story is a ghost story. It's about the ghosts of 1935. And I think that story is best told by the ghosts themselves. So once I realized that, then I realized Lucy had to be already dead and telling her story um, kind of from the grave Mm -hmm. to to help. And then and then you weren't into this kind of repetitive going through the attic stuff over and over and over again. But it also gave real life to the story in the past to have it narrated like that by someone who had lived it. I thought it made a huge difference. It kind of opened up the book for me when I had that idea.
0: Yeah, that makes an awful lot of sense hearing you say that. The other thing, of course, as well, is that we know then that Lucy has this big secret.
1: And yes, we do know so she has a big get secret. To, yes. you know, we know we're going <laughs> to
0: get to it. but And right. so looking at Justine a little bit, um, she inherits the house. And it, as you said, it happens at this time in her life when she feels the need to move. And it kind of goes counter to that thing we were saying about rural communities and the way things are. But she needs to get out. I want to talk a little bit about um, Patrick, their boyfriend, because Part of the theme of the book is about abuse and abusive relationships, Mm -hmm. but this is a very subtle abuse. Maybe it's just the start, you know, in a way it's, it's the fear that this is where it's going. Tell us a little bit about that, please.
1: Well, you mentioned earlier that I had done some work for the coalition um, for battered women. And that was some pro bono work I did as a lawyer uh, representing a woman who had been sent to prison for killing her abuser at a time in California when evidence of abuse was not admissible in trial. So she was convicted of murder when it was really something a lot more like self-defense. Yeah, absolutely. So our job as lawyers was to try to get the governor to overturn these convictions. And in the course of doing that, we needed to educate the governor and his staff about battered women's syndrome. And so I did a lot of research into that. And I gained an, an outsider's understanding of what the dynamics are in a relationship like this and that it is more complicated than just the physical part of it, that you can have pretty significant emotional abuse through manipulation and quiet threats. And I wanted that to be the story that drove Justine out rather than sort of a more straightforward, um, physical violence situation. Yes. Right. Partly because I wanted to show that side of this, of, of abuse, but also partly because I knew I wanted him to resurface in the story later. Sorry, tiny spoiler, but <laughs> not a huge one. And I wanted her to be conflicted about his return. Yes. And so, for her to be conflicted about letting someone back into her life who had physically abused her, while that happens all the time, I felt it would be more difficult for readers to relate to. I wanted mm-hmm. the story to be mu- their relationship to be much more nuanced. There is a lot of good in that relationship mm-hmm. that she sees there's stability, there's loyalty, there's all kinds of things that she's been denied her entire life.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: to make her thinking around him more complicated, that was the direction I chose to go.
0: Yeah, I see that. Was there? Um, was it difficult balancing the two stories, the sort of Lucy and, and Justine, or was that sort of a natural thing?
1: That was the hardest thing about this book, I will right. say. Um, I often said to myself, okay, this is your very first book. Why did you choose literally the hardest structure you could come up with? <laughs> Wouldn't it be easier just it's a good to write? Question. <laughs> well, yeah, so I, that was hard. There was a lot of, um, I wrote it in order as best I could switching between the, the chapters and the voices. And when I did finally get to the end, you know, six years into it, there was a lot of rearranging of chapters and cutting and trimming to fit. The challenges with writing that kind of story, I think, are in number one, making sure the reader is equally interested in both stories. Mm -hmm. And number two, making sure that you are, even though you're switching back and forth between different time periods and different characters, there's a continuous story thread running through both narratives. And to do that, you kind of want to make sure that you have your your big story beats kind of happening at the same time. Yes. Right. Um, you know, and, and and you might have a, a, a Lucy chapter that that deals with a certain thematic element. And then you want the next chapter in Justine's story to also deal with that thematic element. So there's this kind of, I kind of thought of it as like kind of striking sparks off of each ah, other yeah, right. approach to, to lining up which chapters would go next to each other. It was very hard. There were whiteboards and giant index cards all over my wall and, tiny writing in multiple colors of ink and i mean it was you would have thought i was insane if you'd walked into the room when i was doing that
0: (laughs) well everyone has their different approach (laughs) funny enough normally at this stage i might ask about the second novel and Mm -hmm. um talk about it in terms of you know that second difficult album thing they talk about but given how difficult your first album was how did this one go
1: well, so that was hard in a different way. And, right. and my, my editor did tell me, and I am grateful for her to her for telling me this, that second novels are often the most difficult for writers. Right. And the way I think of it is that that first novel, I took eight years to write it kind of because I could, right? Yes. I yes. was a mom and I had other things going on in my life. So there were times when I didn't write for a few weeks, maybe a couple months at a time. Sometimes I only wrote for 15 minutes a day. Mm-hmm it was a hobby. I could kind of fit it in. Then you get that book published and then they say, okay, now we want another one and we want it before X time period. And right. then you have to learn how to be a professional writer. So the first book taught me how to, to be a novelist. The second book taught me how to be an author.
0: I see. Yeah.
1: And that was a very painful learning process because I had to you know, sit down, work through writer's block. I couldn't afford to just say, Okay, well, I'll just put it down for a couple of months and see if something mm. comes to me. It was difficult. It, it, I had to learn the discipline that it requires to be a, a full-time writer.
0: Yeah, I think we should say for people actually in the UK that um, you wrote this novel. The first one came out, I think, in 2016. Yes. And then there's the distance dead, uh, the distant dead, and of course you're now onto your third novel. I, I am to say for people, um, I think they'll love this book. But the distant dead actually comes out next spring.
1: It so does. It so won't be a big
0: wait in the UK for the second be.
1: Wow. <laughs> Yeah, The Distant Dead came out in the US in 2020, but right. you guys get to have it six months later. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> well, people, I promise you, people will be looking forward to that. Um, oh, tell us a little so. bit about The Distant Dead then, please.
1: So The Distant Dead is yet another story set in a remote place in America. I seem to kind of like this venue. Um, this time it's a small town in the in the remote reaches of the desert of Nevada, Right. And in this town, one day, a young boy, he's a sixth grader, about 11 years old, um, on his way to his school bus, he finds the body of his math teacher, right. who has right. been set on fire in the hills outside this town. So that's the instigating or the inciting event of the novels, right. what happened to this math teacher. And the story of what happened to this math teacher involves his past in, in, a, in a university town before he came to the little bitty town. Obviously, the boy who finds his body knows a lot more about it than he's saying at Uh, first. He had a a very special relationship with his math teacher, kind of a father-son type relationship. Mm -hmm. But in the course of that relationship, he learned things that will become important to solving the crime. Um, There's another teacher at the middle school who, Nora, the uh, social studies teacher, who is curious about what happened to the math teacher and starts to do her own investigating. So I would say the distant dead, at least in its structure is um, a more uh, straightforward crime novel. Right. Yes. But it also, because I, I get bored if it's too straightforward, (laughs) has to deal with a lot of themes of family and how we mourn our dead and um, how, who tells our stories all these kinds of things are, are concepts that I'm noodling around within that book.
0: Oh, that sounds fascinating. I'll leave some notes, actually, on the title page so people can see that. Um, just a sort of couple of last questions. I was thinking about, um, do you get much time for reading?
1: You know, I get less time for reading hmm. than I used to. And I will say that's the one downside of, of becoming a writer. You just have less time to sit curled up in a chair yeah. reading a book. Um, I do find that reading other people's books inspires me. So right. often I'll be two or three chapters into a book and I'll just go, oh my God, I have to go write. And then I put it down <laughs> and I go running away and write. So it takes me longer to get through books. Um, but uh yeah, I I I I do still read more than probably your average person.
0: Mm. Is there a recommendation you've made?
1: Well, I would say um the book I've been most recently impressed by uh is, is called The Possible World.
0: Possible World. And
1: it's by um, a woman whose last name is O'Halloran Schwartz. I believe that's correctly correct. Uh, it is not a mystery. Um, well, actually it kind of is. It's actually interesting, the definition of what makes a mystery these days. But mm-hmm. it, it starts with a violent murder. And then it follows uh, the aftermath of that murder through the, the one young boy who's the sole survivor, mm-hmm. the, the e- emergency room nurse who treats him. And a very old woman who appears to have no connection to either of them, but then, of course, later does. Right. And it's re- beautifully written and kind of deals with concepts of like life after life and uh, repressed memory and um, like the memory of, of past lives. It's mm. so cool.
0: <laughs> All right. No, I'll make a note of that for people as well. It's one of those things that I personally, I, I see what you're saying about what's a standard mystery, because these days so much more like your book is about survivors and about the victims, you know, and there's a lot more fiction that's about that now. And it's, it's very, very interesting.
1: Well, I think the trend that has, has been a good one that mysteries have moved away from being simple kind of puzzles that Mm. you had to solve. Um, You had a bunch of chess pieces on the board and one of them falls down and you got to figure out which of the, like a game of Clue. clue. And they were sort of mental exercises to read some of the older, more classic mysteries I think the movement towards making mysteries human stories and really examining what happens when someone is violently murdered, that's a massive disaster. And it is going to have like a blast zone that impacts everyone around the victim and the people who are brought in as suspects. And I don't know that you can tell that story honestly without examining that blast zone. So I love that mysteries over the last 20 to 30 years have chosen, you know, mystery writers have chosen to kind of cover that aspect of violent
0: crime. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree with you. So I think that's a very, very good point to end on.
1: Mm -hmm. Heather, that's been
0: fantastic. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you very much.
0: I have to say that was a really fascinating insight into The Lost Girls and I have to thank Heather very much for that. The Lost Girls is available in paperback on the 25th of November from Verve Books. It's also available as an e-book. I'll be back shortly with another interview, but for now, thank you for listening and Bye.